You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is... June 7th, 2021, a Monday morning, episode 73 of season 3, episode 138 of the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. Today I want to talk a bit about bitterness and anger. In fact, that's all I want to talk about this morning. We'll try and stay focused, stay concise. My episodes have been getting a bit longer here lately. I've had a couple of 30-minute episodes, 30 and some change last week, but I've had a lot more that were pushing 45 minutes to an hour. And I want to try and scale that back and bring that back into the 30-minute goalpost I had set for myself. Maybe if I have some 28-minute, 30-minute episodes, that'll bring my average back down again where I was trying to have it at the beginning of the season. But yesterday, and I'll preface with this, We didn't go to church. We didn't go to church yesterday morning. It wasn't because of bitterness and anger. But, of course, when you stay home from church, for any reason, you think about church. I do, anyway. I don't stay home from church and then not think about church. I stay home from church, and then I think I wonder what the interactions would have been like had we gone. What would have the conversations been and how's everybody else doing? And we're very fortunate. We're very blessed to have found a church home. I believe it was providential that we ended up where we are right now in this house with the neighbors that we have two houses down, JP and Monica Chavez. They're a huge blessing in our lives. And the fact that we have this extended church family to be a part of, to encourage and to be encouraged by, is a major answer to prayer for us. But so also, I continue to grapple with how much does my previous experience, good and bad experience, in churches benefit this particular church? How can I benefit this particular church? And insofar as this podcast is targeting Christians and secular people alike trying to promote the Christian worldview and the cultivation of a Christian worldview, how do I make use of my good and bad experiences in church to help others? How do I edify and build others up who are listening or who I interact with when I go to work? You know, If I go to work and I'm working with and around a lot of people that don't go to church or that do go to church, but it's more of a Sunday and Easter family obligation sort of a thing. It's more of a cultural thing. What kind of an influence am I having by my own conduct? If they hear that we're very involved in church and church is very important to us, how am I speaking on these things? How am I conducting myself at work? How am I carrying myself? And am I doing so, doing such, et cetera, et cetera, in a way that is a good example, is a good influence, that is helpful 
to them, that honors God, that is faithful. So as I continue to grapple with these and related questions concerning church, it's hard to not think first and foremost and longest about bad experiences in church. There's one young guy that I used to work with who since has moved on to another state and he moved away and so we don't work together uh, anymore, but I keep in touch with him. Now, I remember talking with him about church a little bit, not that I brought it up, but I think I just mentioned, hey, we, you know, we are pretty involved in church. And we were just conversing back and forth. And he says, yeah, I don't like going to church. I've had too many bad experiences. And church is just full of hypocrites, right? That's Everybody that doesn't go to church as a rule, it's always because church is full of hypocrites. And my comment to him at the time was, yeah, yeah, lots of churches have lots of hypocrites. And everybody dabbles and dips their toe in the waters of hypocrisy from time to time. But I think the question in my mind is, do you find fewer hypocrites outside of the church? I mean, the people that say, I'm not going to go to church because it's full of hypocrites, like where do you go to avoid hypocrisy? Where do you avoid people hurting people or being mean and selfish and ignorant? And you just can't. I mean, you, even if you just shut yourself up in a little cabin in the woods and you become a hermit and you never talk with anybody ever again, even there, you are not going to have escaped uh, the selfishness and hypocrisy of people because you're there. Anywhere a human being who has a sinful nature to grapple with exists and resides, you're going to have that. And where you get multiple people, you're going to have all the more dices uh, being rolled to give you that every now and then. So all of that said, is it possible to avoid hypocrisy? Is it possible to avoid the human frailty or even uh, wickedness that so many people avoid church because they're trying to get away from? I would say no. No, it isn't. You know, my dad's side of the family, for as far back as I can trace the genealogy, as far as I know, for hundreds of years, hundreds and hundreds of years, were Mennonites. In fact, the very year that they immigrated from Switzerland, the Mullets did, there was a lot of migration from Switzerland to the very place that my Mullet ancestors uh, moved to. They came across on a ship, and that part of Pennsylvania that they initially settled in, was a Mennonite colony. So then presumably my mullet ancestors were Mennonites before they moved here. And if I don't find any evidence to the contrary, they very well might have been Mennonites for hundreds of years in Switzerland before they immigrated to America. I have no evidence to the contrary. I don't have any evidence to support that. But then I don't see them popping up as valiant warriors and making the headlines or being in politics. And that's one of the distinctives of Mennonites is that they typically shy away from any Christian involvement in government or in the military or in law enforcement. They want to live in their own separate communities, be away from all of that. 
because that's the world. They want to live unstained from the world, and they want to be faithful to what God's Word says, particularly about turning the other cheek. And one of the big distinctives of the Mennonite denomination, movement, uh, tradition, if you will, is that it was very much averse to the interdenominational, um, you know, Protestant versus Catholic fighting, which became so common after the Protestant Reformation. They were very much averse to, you know, what is joked about in some histories I've read that pertain to Switzerland, where, you know, at the, at the worst of all of this back and forth, even a Jew might be stopped on the street and asked whether he was a Catholic or a Protestant. And in one particular story or anecdote, a Jew is asked, are you a Protestant or a Catholic? You know, and obviously the way they're going to be treated immediately after they answer that will be decided very much by which way they answer. And so this guy answers, well, I'm a Jew. And then comes the follow-up question, well, are you a Catholic Jew or a Protestant Jew? You know, and that all just goes to show that the animus was real. The, the bitter contention between Protestants and Catholics was very real. You had on the one hand the Reformed crowd, and you had on the other hand the Catholic holdouts in Switzerland. And from one dookie or... Um, I don't remember what they called the the little territories, but from one little section, one little area, one little domain in Switzerland to the next, you might have a Roman Catholic enclave over here and a Reformed enclave over here. And you might off to the side, trying to stay out of all that, have Mennonites. But the one thing I know about from growing up in a family that for generations and generations, as far back as we know, was Mennonite, is that that being isolated doesn't mean that you keep yourself unspotted from the world. It doesn't mean that all of a sudden everything's hunky-dory and there's no sin and there's no vice and there's no selfishness and there's no hypocrisy because people are there, right? So long as there are people there, there's still going to be a sinful nature to contend with. So then what do you do when you're confronted with that? When there is sin by a person against other people, when you are the one being sinned against or when you see other people being sinned against in your proximity and you have an opportunity to engage that or not? Do you get active? Do you confront it head on? Are you passive and you don't engage it at all? Do you engage it? for a little bit and then break off and mind your own business because it's not getting anywhere and you're going to focus on more productive things. All of those questions we have to wrestle with. And so for some people, what they do is they say, I'm just not going to go. I'm not going to be a part of all that. But they're presuming that there is a way to avoid people being sinful. And there just isn't. There, there just isn't a way to do that shy of Jesus coming back, taking his saints whose names are written in the book of life back to heaven and perfecting them, perfecting us. You know, that includes me. Uh, you know, I'm not perfected. So I sin against people. Sometimes I say things I ought not to say. I don't blame my 
mother and my grandmother, but I do attribute a great deal of my um, candor and eloquence, eloquent candor, to my mother and my grandmother. And it was from them, I think, that I developed such a penchant for speaking off the cuff, for speaking at length. Then again, my father and my grandfather also were pretty willing to hold forth and wax eloquent about any given topic and still are. In the case of my dad, he's willing to sit and chat about something for a long, long time. You can sit and have a conversation as long as the coffee holds out and we're not too tired. Sit and hold forth on any given topic, something political, something theological, something pertaining to the church. And that is to say, too, that from both sides, from my mother's side and from my father's side, I grew up hearing a lot of criticism of the church. And I would say from both my mother and my father's sides, I grew up with, for better or worse, a penchant for critiquing trends in Christianity. And not in the abstract, not like you pick up a copy of Christianity Today and you say, well, that's a dumb headline. No, I mean, going to a church service and hearing a sermon or seeing somebody conduct themselves in a certain way in the church, particularly in leadership, and not biting our tongues. We don't bite our tongues when we see bad conduct, bad behavior, bad habit, bad theology, bad teaching in the church as a rule. So in abstract, that might take the form, and it has all my growing up, all my formative years, of speaking about the church in general, right, in the abstract or or broadly brushing. You know, the church is X, Y, Z. The church is doing this, that, or the other thing. And what we always mean is the church in America. Obviously, our experience is pretty well confined to the United States of America. But within the United States, it's pretty broad. You know, my mother being from Florida, which is Spanish for flower, my dad being from Montana, which is Spanish for mountain. Between the flower and the mountain, you could say, I was raised. Between the two of them, there's a whole lot of culture. There's a whole big cross-section of America. And so our experience with churches everywhere in between those spaces, including but not limited to Ohio, now Colorado, also Kansas for my dad, our experience is pretty broad, and we've been everywhere. We've seen a lot, and we've heard a lot. And sometimes what we observe, we observe passing through. And I'll speak for myself specifically. What I observe sometimes is me being removed emotionally from the thing, except in the sense that I am invested in the truth and it bothers me if somebody is willfully twisting the truth or they're just flippantly throwing something out there without regards to whether it's true fully. It bothers me when somebody is being a flatterer or they're sidestepping an issue because they're afraid of paying a cost and and suffering a consequence for it. And so that that has an emotional aspect to it, and it, it bothers me. But there's a difference between that abstract and that 
somewhat removed uh, type of problem, you know, like the conversation with my coworker where he says he doesn't go to church because church is full of hypocrites. Okay, well, that's an abstract general statement, and I can think of specific people that I think have been hypocrites, but I can also talk about that in the abstract, generally speaking, without mentioning anybody by name, without talking about any specific situation that I was privy to, just general truth, right? General back and forth, like I did here a few minutes ago. But what do you do with specific interactions that are more personal when the rubber meets the road and it is you who has been sinned against and it has been painful and it has been disappointing? What do you do when people in church you've gotten close to and you trusted and you opened up to disappoint you and let you down? What do you do when you have bared your soul in a multitude of ways over an extended period of time and you feel betrayed? And moreover, you confront those people that you opened up to and you bared your soul to about the betrayal and they say that it's actually your fault. It's your fault that you feel betrayed. I remember talking with a pastor about these sorts of things in a specific situation and trying to figure out, did I handle this right? Did I handle this correctly for my part, right? If I want there to be conflict resolution, have I done as much as lieth within me to do to live peaceably with all men. Because if so, I want to be able to move on. It seems like it's time to move on, and I want to move, I want to be able to move on, but if I still wonder if there's something more I could do that would fix this, then I, I don't want to leave that alone. I don't want to let it go. I want to fix it and then move on. I don't want to just move on because it got hard and it got difficult. Am I missing something? Is there a step that I could take next that would conclude this, that would give me closure? And the response I got from this pastor who was kind of aware of the situation but was not directly involved and so therefore had a little bit more objectivity than I was able to have at that point, the response I got was that it might be I need to walk away for a time. But at a certain point, if there's anybody that I intend to still have a relationship with, I should re-engage at a certain point, follow up, bring it back up again to that person and explain, hey, you know, here's how you've sinned against me. Matthew 18 says X, Y, Z, and I'm trying to be faithful to that and I'm trying to be obedient and give them another opportunity to repent and Give them an opportunity to tell you if they think that you sinned against them. But from what you're describing, from how you're explaining the situation, unless there's you know details that you have left out, it sounds like you handled it the way that you should have. You, you handled that appropriately. They just didn't respond appropriately, and that happens. And so I listened to this advice, and I thanked this pastor. And the years have gone on now. It's been a few years. And it still hurts, right? It feels like a broken bone that just never did quite heal right. And so if I walk with a limp and it bothers me and I'm reminded of it sometimes when the weather changes 
or when I see a hint of potential for a similar situation to unfold, it comes up again, right? All the same emotions come flooding back. And if I'm not sure always that I've figured out what happened exactly the first time around, or if I could have done something differently to make it work out in a more beneficial way, I replay everything that happened again in my head and I obsess over it. And that's not good. That's not good that I obsess over it, particularly if I did what I was supposed to do. It's not good then that I get gun shy and I'm grappling now with whether I should just disengage from this situation because this person might disappoint me, might betray me, might hurt me or my family the way that we've been hurt before. That's not good, right? I mean, full stop, (laughs) that's enough for today. That's not good. That's not good when I see other people doing that where they say, there's hypocrisy in the church, I had some bad experiences. I'm never going back again. It's not good when they say it. So however I feel, however wounded I might feel, that's not what decides whether it's good or not. What decides whether it's good or not is what God's word says. What does God say? And is the point here to avoid getting hurt or is the point here to pick up my cross and follow after Christ? I mean, picking up your cross, following after Christ is not... (laughs) It, it's not a <laughs> exit strategy from pain and disappointment and betrayal. In fact, it's an embracing of those things. I mean, right? I mean, that, that's what it is. You're, you're embracing the fact that there's going to be treachery. You're going to be arrested and tried on trumped-up charges. You're going to be treated unjustly, even by people who are supposedly very religious. And there's a distinction, right? A distinct Distinguish between somebody who is a Christian and somebody who's just very religious because they're not the same thing. Even when the way in which they claim to be religious has a lot of Christianized trappings, that does not mean that they're such a great Christian. It could be that's just the flavor of the month for their area for now. And if the flavor of the month were some other religious tradition, they would be that because it's not about that religion. First and foremost, it's about the benefits socially to being identified with this religious practice. I'm a good person. Do you think you're a good person? As Ray Comfort might say, they think they're a good person. And so we should distinguish between somebody who's very religious and somebody who is following Jesus, who puts their trust in Jesus. And you can know the people who put their trust in Jesus and they follow Jesus, not by whether they make mistakes every now and then, not by whether they sometimes say things they ought not to say, not by whether they sometimes do things they ought not to do, not by whether they sometimes leave out certain details that they should have included because they're flattering so-and-so or they're afraid to incur the wrath of such-and-such person. Sometimes they don't do what they're supposed to do, these Christian people like you and me. Sometimes we don't do what we're supposed to do. There's a whole lot of reasons why that might be. But the test is when that's the case, when it is the case that we have sinned against God or our fellow man by omission or commission, by saying or not saying, when that becomes clear, the Christian response 
is repentance, whereas the religious response is to justify themselves, to, in fact, insist that the other person is the evildoer for having dared to confront them or rebuke them or express that they're hurt by what has just been done or not done, said or not said. That was the other piece of advice, the friendly advice, helpful advice, counseling that I received from this one pastor a number of years back, was that in a dysfunctional family, when someone complains about being abused, the response is not to listen to the pain of that person who's been abused. The response is to make the person who's been abused, who's now expressing that the hurt, to make that person into the problem instead of dealing with the problem. You know a a dysfunctional family from a functional family from a healthy family by how we respond when one of our number is sinned against, when one of our number expresses pain and disappointment or even says, hey, that's wrong. Here's boundaries now. You can't treat me that way. You can't talk to me that way. That's disrespectful. That's abusive. That's wrong. It's sinful. It's wicked. The dysfunctional family will say, you are actually the problem. Nobody else has a problem with this. This is the way we've always done it. You are actually the problem. And all of that was to say, on the part of this pastor, what he was getting at in context that the situation I had experienced where I had been hurt in church by people in leadership, the situation I described to him was a dysfunctional family. We had gotten very, very involved in a dysfunctional church family. And things were not handled in a biblical way. And then even when the scriptures were brought to bear to say what has been done is not biblical and your response when confronted about it is not biblical. And here's what the Bible says. And here's what God's word says. Here's what God says. It's not just some book. It's not just some decoration we put on the table at the back of the sanctuary while we go about pleasing ourselves and amusing ourselves and impressing everyone. This book is our authority for Christian life and practice and doctrine. I want to read for you Ephesians 4 from verse 17 on down to the end of the chapter, verse 32. And I'll have to wrap up here shortly. If I'm going to keep to about 30 minutes, if I'm going to scale myself back, grade on a curve, I've got to bring the average down for my episodes. Right now I'm at 41 minutes and 4 seconds, the past two episodes notwithstanding. But Ephesians 4, 17 through 32, Paul writes, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed, to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, 
and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away all falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So, that's a tall order, friends, Romans, countrymen. That is a very difficult passage. Not difficult to read, not difficult to understand, difficult to do. When our children, Lawrence and my children, seven now with an eighth on the way, when our children get in conflict with one another and they get crossways and they're upset, sometimes my wife has them recite back verse 32 there. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And it's amazing how instantly that reframes their emotional state, their interactions with their sibling. It's amazing how instantly it recalibrates the way that they formerly, just previously, were feeling entitled to relate. So also, not just for children, but we all like children, should think about that. We should meditate on that. We should write it somewhere prominent, somewhere we'll see it and remember it. We'll think of it. I should write it and put it somewhere where I'm going to think of it. I had a friend of mine, who I won't mention by name, but a friend of mine reached out to me yesterday regarding the podcast, and he's been listening, and he was giving me some helpful advice. One of the helpful pieces of advice he gave was that my episodes are getting a bit longer. Seems like maybe you're slipping a little bit and getting more into the 45 to 50 plus minute range again. I want to scale that back. Remember, you know, you were planning on having 30 minute episodes. Yep. You're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. Thank you. But another thing he pointed out and he, he talked about a number of things in general, and he kept coming back to this theme, was a concern about my being bitter over a previous bad experience in church. And I've talked about that bad experience. If you listen to every episode, you'll find me talking about it, uh, either specifically and in detail or just in passing reference a number of times, because it left a, it left a mark. It did. I, I bring it up because it comes to mind, and I'm still trying to turn that Rubik's Cube over in my hand 
and solve it. But I appreciate, friend, if you're listening, appreciate you reaching out to talk about your concerns there. And it was good. It was good that you did. And I will give what you had to say some serious thought. But one thing I can say already is, insofar as there are good lessons to learn and to carry with me into future situations, to be wiser, to be more effective, to be more fruitful in my interactions in church, in my family, in the workplace, et cetera, et cetera. Insofar as it's good for me to learn lessons and move on, I should remember what happened. But insofar as it's good for me to move on, I need to not be bitter. I need to not hold on to the bitterness that I feel sometimes or every time I think about this bad experience. I need to think first and foremost of what honors God in this situation. What does God desire? Does God desire for me to be bitter about it? No. Plain and simple, no. He doesn't. Does my being bitter make me more fruitful, more productive, more effective? No, actually. On the contrary, it makes me less of those things. It's a liability. And just like I confronted persons who had bad attitudes and they probably could have come up with a thousand justifications for their bad attitudes that were not in accordance with the scriptures, I also need to confront myself. If it turns out I've got a bad attitude here where these things are concerned. Now, before I go, real quick, I want to make clear the reason why we didn't go to church yesterday morning and the Sunday before yesterday wasn't because of anger and bitterness. So just to be clear, I'm not talking about bitterness and anger on my part because that's why we're staying home from church here the past Sundays. My wife being pregnant, she's just been extremely nauseous, very tired, and I'm not nauseous. That's not contagious. Pregnancy is not contagious. But the fatigue that comes with pregnancy definitely is contagious. And so to give her the maximum opportunity to rest and so also myself to play the long game, we just decided it's better for us to stay home until we get through this hardest part of the pregnancy, this first part of the pregnancy where nausea is always really, really bad for her. Fatigue is really bad. I'm just going to rest keep it low-key, and focus on being a family unit. And we'll come back, obviously. We'll come back before you know it. But in the meantime, I don't want to be unfruitful, unproductive. So, for instance, I'm going to grapple with this, all this bitterness and anger that sometimes comes welling up inside. I got to leave it there, though. If I'm going to stop short of 40 minutes, which I intend to, as always, thank you for listening and Thank you, friend, for reaching out with your feedback. You are a scholar and a gentleman, and I thank God for you. For everybody else, it's an open invitation. If you hear me saying something that I ought not to say or having a bad attitude and you're concerned about it, don't keep it to yourself. Stop it. Get some help, as Michael Jordan would say. But till next time, thank you and God bless. 
You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.